This is a new voice for a new Scotland. Now it's the Yes Group Spotlight Show. Which Yes Group will be stepping into the spotlight this week? Good morning, you're listening to IndieLife.radio. It's Monday the 19th of July, just after 11 o'clock. My name's Valerie Gold and I'm introducing today's edition of the Yes Group Spotlight show. This is a show where we feature recordings of meetings that you may have missed and it gives you a second chance to listen in to meetings held by Yes Groups up and down the country. And today's recording is from last month and it's of a meeting that was hosted by a a group that Marlene Halliday and I are both members of here in Glasgow, Yes Glasgow Northwest. The guest speaker was the always interesting and inspiring Gordon McIntyre Kemp, the CEO of Believe in Scotland and and also Business for Scotland. And Gordon was talking on the subject of the wellbeing economy and winning NDRF2. The wellbeing economy, winning NDRF2, guest speaker Gordon McIntyre Kemp, and we'd like to thank Yes Glasgow Northwest for allowing us to record their meeting and broadcast it on Indie Live Radio here for you today. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to tonight's meeting. My name is Valerie Gold and I'm not going to say very much apart from maybe helping with the Q&A later on. I'm going to hand over in a moment to uh, Geraldine Houston because Geraldine is the driving force behind this meeting. She came back very excited about a meeting she'd been to in Believe in Scotland uh, that she'd heard and she was very inspired, which is good at this time because I think some of us you know, there's a lot of negativity around. And I think sometimes we can get a little jaded. So it was absolutely brilliant to see Jenna <laughs> so fired up. And she immediately arranged for Gordon Martin Kemp to come and speak to us, which we're delighted. And the title of tonight's meeting is The Wellbeing Economy and Winning in DRF2. What is not to like there? So I'm going to pass over to Geraldine now to introduce tonight's speaker. Thank you. Thanks, Valerie. Um, yeah, so we at Glasgow, yes, Glasgow Northwest are, as Valerie said, absolutely delighted to be able to welcome Gordon McIntyre Kemp as our guest speaker tonight. As I'm sure you will all know, Gordon is CEO of Business for Scotland, um, which was hugely influential in the 2014 NDRF campaign. Um, more recently, Gordon and the Business for Scotland team have founded Believe in Scotland, an initiative that aims to answer questions people might have about Scottish independence in easy to understand format. They have brought us the hugely informative Scotland the Brief book and Scotland the Brief mini book um, and have uh, partnered with national newspaper um, in a campaign aiming to convert undecided or soft no voters and have had several high profile billboard campaigns, which I'm sure we've all seen very impressive around, around the place. Um, they have supported and are continuing to support, most importantly, uh, local yes groups with campaign materials, books, leaflets, posters and such like. And I hear there are big plans for mass targeting, canvassing like days away in the hopefully not too distant post-pandemic future, which we'll all look forward to. Um, we're going to hear tonight from Gordon about uh, well-being e- e- econ- economics and why it must sit at the heart of the case for independence. 
And then after that, as Valerie said, we're going to have a Q&A session and hopefully hear some of Gordon's thoughts on the, the when and the how of the next independence referendum. And most importantly, how to win it this time. Um, so everybody sit back, make yourselves comfy. Without any more prattling from me, I'm thrilled to introduce our guest speaker for tonight, Gordon McIntyre-Kemp. Thank you very much, Geraldine. Um, delighted to be here. Um, it's, it's interesting because always I, uh, if I'm doing talks around the country, quite often there's a drive away, sometimes there's overnight stays and all that sort of thing. Uh, but this is actually one that I would be able to do and just walk home from uh, anyway, no matter where it was, because I live in the, in the West End in Jordan Hill anyway. Uh, which is why I couldn't say no, because Geraldine knows where I live, just around the corner from her. So, <laughs> should we not be organ? Why do you say no? Um, but no, I'm, I'm delighted to, to, to also uh, know so many of you personally as well. So uh, I know I'm going to be in a tough time for questions tonight. Um, but I'll look forward to that later. Um, so yeah, basically there's two things uh, that, that Geraldine asked me to talk about. One was um, the well-being economy, which is really all about how uh, we're trying to lead the discussion on creating a new economic case for independence that is new case because of brexit and because of covid everything has to change um and the thing is that we've got an opportunity now to understand that the old economic system doesn't work it wasn't working it was creating mass inequality the rich were getting richer the poor were getting poorer and that only ever ends uh, one way in uh, throughout history um, uh, with, with total economic collapse. Uh, we've also got uh, issues around um, uh, climate change, which is already making uh, major uh, economic impacts in South America uh, and Africa. Uh, and it's going to make even bigger impacts on Western economies in the future as well. So we can't go back to normal after Brexit and COVID lockdowns because normal wasn't working and normal isn't an option. So we've got to rethink economics. And I think that's a huge opportunity for Scotland, because as we actually consider what sort of country we want to live in, what sort of emphasis we want, what sort of ethics do we want in our economic systems, as we're actually not starting from a blank sheet of paper, but sort of starting from a blank sheet of paper, we get to actually ask the nation what sort of country they want. What are our goals and aspirations? What are our needs, our own individual needs? And how can we actually fit all of that into a uh, way forward, you know, on uh, our, our social socioeconomic uh, strategy? So well-being is a term which kind of replaces both capitalism and socialism. If you think about capitalism, socialism, left and right, that's the, 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 the prism through which we view politics and economics uh, from last century. It's not going to work this century. In fact, it was from the century before, so it was already outdated last century. And my view is that capitalism and socialism are both dead because you can't have a strong economy without a strong society. and You can't have a strong society without a strong economy. And if you have a situation, which is what we do in politics, where we have in Westminster, for instance, we have a right-wing government goes along for a few years, doesn't invest in society, and then you know the economy booms for a short period of time because of tax incentives, those sort of things, but the society starts to fall apart, uh, you end up with a boom and bust, and then we swing the pendulum over to the left and we elect a, a more left-wing government, and the left-wing government starts to reinvest in society, starts to bring up benefits, etc., like that, and starts to put back to work, etc., uh, uh, policies in place. Um, but they don't understand the business end of the economy. 
And so basically we have society build up and the business end of the economy collapses and everyone's sort of, we're going backwards and forwards. And it's, what's that, what's that saying that, um, you know, um, uh, the definition of stupidity is making the same mistake over and over again. Well, my entire lifetime would be making that mistake. I think for, you know, a lot longer than that beforehand as well. And some people thought the answer was the middle, you know, which is a, a fudge on every level. And it just doesn't work. It's called the Liberal Party, uh, Liberal Democratic Party. Nobody votes for them. Uh, so it's not about ending the, the, the swing of the pendulum by keeping it in the middle. It's about elevating our thinking. It's about understanding why we form societies in the first place, why we form economies, why economies exist, what the purpose of those economies are. And so basically, we've got this chance with independence, coinciding with COVID, coinciding with Brexit to say, okay, we need to redesign, rethink absolutely everything. We can't go back to normal because normal wasn't working. So how do we build back better? And that's what well-being economics is all about. So I'm going to take you through a wee presentation. I'm going to share my screen and take you through a wee presentation on well-being economics. And then we'll throw it open to questions and I'll answer any questions. And it doesn't need to be on well-being economics. Make, make the first few on that. Hopefully you'll be interested enough to, to ask some questions on it. And if you've got other economic ideas that you've been you've been hearing about that are groups talking about different ideas, different approaches, etc. You want to question me on that. I'm happy to answer questions on those as well. And then we'll just have a, a, a chat. I'll try and answer as frankly and honestly as I can on questions about anything from the timings of the next referendum that Geraldine wanted me to talk about as well, uh, right through to you know any political situation that, that that you want to understand. Not because. I understand everything. It's just that I'm totally and utterly immersed in this and I speak to people day in, day out. So I might have a little something to contribute. So I'm going to share my screen now and uh, take you through a quick presentation on well-being economics. So basically, yeah, um, well-being, it's about a model for infinite prosperity. It's about doing things radically differently. It's about rethinking economics um, and understanding that we can no longer miss the fact that the economy and society are one, they're interwoven, and you can't have success in one area without success in the other area. But first, let's talk about what it means to independence, because here we've got um, uh, a poll which has done, there's been multiple polls, and they've all come out roughly with the same area, or the same, same number, which basically say that there's up to 75% of Scots would vote for independence if we made the right economic case. Now, the right economic case isn't about better explaining why jurors doesn't actually mean what the situation would be in an independent Scotland. What, a, what, what, what the right economic case means is something that everyone can look at and go, that's the sort of country I want to be part of. That is the sort of approach to running our economy and running our society that inspires me. And currently, we don't have that. And the Sustainable Growth Commission certainly doesn't inspire uh, an awful lot of people. So, but how do you find... Uh, when you have people divided by left and right, uh, more to the centre-left in Scotland, uh, England's a centre-right country, we're a centre-left country. So how do you inspire people when those people are all right across the political spectrum? Well, there is an answer, which is that well-being economics appeals to people on both sides of the political spectrum. When you explain it to them, that one, uh, that left and right uh, can't uh, work in... Uh, uh, on their own that they, you've got to have, sometimes you've got to hold complete, what seem to be completely contradictory economic ideas in your head at the same time. An idea from the far left, an idea from the far right might be together the only thing that will ever actually make the economy work. 
when you explain that to people, a light bulb goes on in a lot of people's heads and they realize that they've been led up the garden path down political tribalism to try and make you vote for one political party or another for so long that we've actually forgotten to take a step back and actually think, ask ourselves, well, how does the economy work? How does society work? Um, and one of the things that, that I think people within the Yes movement misunderstand is just where people sit in terms of their uh, thinking uh, on independence. Now, this one in particular is uh, from a poll that we did in April this year, and it also shows you um, that that 75%, is it achievable? Well, this poll shows from the green on the right-hand side is the number 10, those com most committed to independence, to zero, those most committed to the union. As you can see, this poll shows a significant lead, but there's at least 30% in the middle that could go either way. And that 30% would take the if you can win them all that that 30 percent takes yes to 70 percent but you could lose them all with the wrong economic argument as well and right now i think we've got no economic argument because let's just do something similar to what the uk does is not an economic argument when the uk has been collapsing for years uh, under economic generations of economic mismanagement i think i'll draw your attention also to this and to understand because most a lot of people think that that yes uh, people who decide that they support yes. So when you see a poll that says we're at 55% yes, they go, that's 55% of the population are like me. They're not. If you're, not, if you're a 10, then 75% of the population aren't like you. There's a lot of people around six and seven and eight who could be persuaded against independence with the wrong economic argument or with enough scaremongering. That's what happened last time around. So we have to go at the pace of the people in three, four, five, six, and seven, they will dictate when we have the next referendum. And they're not going to be ready until after uh, COVID. They're not going to be ready until we've actually presented a better economic case. And when we've done that and COVID is clear, then we can start thinking about uh, how, when we actually have a referendum. Uh, last year, we did a survey. Uh, Scotiaomics is the think tank uh, arm of uh, Business for Scotland. It uh, does all of our research, but also consults, which is why we, with, with uh, private clients, which is why we sort of spun it out. Uh, the, we did a bit of research on uh, well-being economics, where we actually looked around the world, all the well-being economic policies that were being put in play by governments, and we mapped out what each well-being policy was, what the core of it was, what its ethics were, what its values were. And we came up with 17 core values of the well-being approach. And in a lot of these countries, it's just virtue signaling. There's no real uh, move to, to, to actually moving away from capitalism to well-being or socialism to well-being, wherever they started from, uh, or democratic socialism, as some of them would call it, to, to, to well-being. There's no real move to that. They're just, it, it's a bit like the word progressive. And we thought, well, let's put it all together and let's say, well, if we actually listed right across the, the, the values, right across the field of policy, what would that actually look like? And how would people react if we said, this is where we think we should go? So um, the first thing that we, uh, we actually put together was a question, which is um, uh, overall attitude towards quality of life, fairness, happiness, and health are all economic outcomes that should be given equal weight to economic growth. And in Scotland, 78% of the population agreed with that. And I'd like to point out that the undecided are still left in here, so it's really about 86% if you take the undecided out. So it just goes to show just how many people 
would actually agree with that statement, which goes 100% in the opposite direction of the Conservative government's thinking, or even the Labour government's thinking, or, or any future Labour government's thinking, any recent Labour government's thinking on economics. But what really interested us was, when we actually asked that question, we broke it down in terms of age groups, we found that the group that was most uh, keen on a well-being approach to economics was actually the 55s plus. So the group that is most opposed to independence is the one that feels it's got the most potentially to lose as they were attacked by scaremongering because they read the press uh, and don't get their information through other sources as, as easily. Uh, and you know, when, you, when we actually showed them all of the values, they said, yeah, that's the sort of country we want to leave our children behind. And we thought that was absolutely fascinating. So you've got a situation where a well-being approach to economics, abandoning the Sustainable Growth Commission and not going way to the left, et cetera, but actually saying, look, this is, this is what we're looking at. This is the values of the economic system we want to put in place. And when you do that, yes, there's a mass majority right across the all age groups, but the, in almost every, no, in every area, the older folks bought into it more than anybody else. Um, overall attitudes towards you cannot have a, this is the key, uh, the key saying, the key sort of slogan, if you like, you cannot have a thriving economy uh, without a thriving society, and you can't have a thriving society without a thriving economy. And 72% said that matched their beliefs. They understood that you can't govern purely from the right or purely from the left. And I guess... A lot of people understand that, but the political elites move to the centre to try and uh, match that general truth within the population. But then they lost control uh, during the, the financial crisis. They've not been able to cope uh, with um, COVID very well. And therefore, people have started to look outside the centre for more extreme politicians like Boris Johnson, like Trump, like many across the world. Um, and it, you know, it, it's interesting that the, the, the political elites who sit in the centre left or the centre right uh, were just swept away in quite a lot of places. But in some places, they're coming back. Didn't happen in Scotland. Uh, and you know, it, it's an interesting view. Maybe it's because they're not independent, but it does appear that there are the the, the actual broad church that the SNP used to <laughs> uh, represent. Uh, held together much, uh, much more, uh, much better than uh, the, the 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 more uh, narrower political parties uh, in elections. So this one here actually shows uh, that actual, that actual statement there. We looked at 2019 voting intentions from voters. So there's a thousand people polled in this poll by panel base. Uh, and we found out that on that particular statement, that key understanding, conservative voters came out top, joint top with Lib Dem voters. So we're finding a pattern here that shows massive support amongst Labour and SNP. Amongst, uh, we didn't do Green because Greens didn't stand candidates in 2019 uh, or enough candidates to, 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 to be statistically relevant to the survey in 2019. But we know that they're, they're way behind this. Probably they would come out top on everyone if you, if you could pull enough of them. Um, but we actually found out that the older folks who are against independence were most uh, aligned to the idea of well-being and conservatives and Lib Dems on many of the core ideas were also most aligned to the concepts of well-being. Conservatives less so on many of the other ones, more of the social ones, which you would expect, but still in every single area, there was a conservative majority 
for every single well-being approach. Um, if we build society and our economy more successful, uh, successfully after coronavirus, we can create a new economic approach that will allow both our economy and our society to thrive and be more resilient in the face of economic crises. Again, 70%, yes. Only 11%, no. Still with undecideds in there. So again, you're talking 79, 80% if you move the undecideds uh, either way. So basically, people across Scotland are crying out for a new approach to economics. They understand at their core that the old approach doesn't work. And there you can see, which I think is quite interesting, you'd you expect the SNP and Labour to be high on that. Um, and, uh, you know, but the Lib Dems were very, very strong on that too. But let's take a look at uh, the Conservatives. And yeah, you'd actually maybe think that that is a little bit, uh, I don't know, socialist, a bit more left-wing uh, value, but they still buy into it in a majority of 52%. Um, so 52 to 22%. So really, only about a third of Conservative voters disagree with this when you remove the undecideds. And that's when you start to realise that there is something that would appeal to that 75% that would actually uh, vote for independence if we give the right economic case. Ending poverty, inequality, unfairness, increasing minimum wage and job security will boost the economy. So what we're saying is here that actually it's two sides of the same coin. If you want, if you end the po uh, po if you end poverty, pay better pensions, for instance. If you maybe put basic income in place. If you end inequality and unfairness, increase the minimum wage so that people feel secure in their, their their jobs, then the economy will be boosted. So this is a left followed by a right wing goal, a left a left wing value followed by a right wing goal, if you like. Um, and again, right across the board, there is significant support for this. And when the, 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 the chief executive of the polling company was looking at this uh, raw data, and he actually, I spoke to him on the phone as he was preparing the, the data for me, and he said, uh, are the SNP and Labour voters exactly the same people in Scotland? And I said, yeah, pretty much, except for they vote for one party or another. They have almost identical views. And you, we find this throughout this poll, throughout all of the polls we do. And that's why so many Labour voters are now starting to vote for independence. Also, if you look at the tactical voting in Holyrood, and we actually match this to Holyrood voting intentions, uh, or that a future poll matched the Holyrood voting intentions, you'd find that so many Labour unionists voted tactically in certain seats that you'll find there was a massive majority of one, those that do that did still vote Labour would support independence. And so, you know, if they are really not voting Labour, the unionists are not voting Labour, they're voting Conservatives, then the Labour membership or the Labour vote, not the membership, sorry, the Labour vote in Scotland is becoming pro-independence, and that's fascinating. So how does this all sort of fit together? And if you've read the book, Scotland, The Brief, you'll see the comparison that we do, uh, the UK ac across all the different categories versus uh, all of the Western, uh, Western and Northern European nations, and the UK comes out bottom on every single value. So there has to be a way to measure this, because it's, it's, it's a really idea about nice way to run the country unless there's a, a specific strategy behind it, unless there's a way to actually model the impacts of policies, etc. So we created that too. Uh, and this is, you know, how, how do we elevate economics? And we, we basically looked, this is a few years old now, this piece of research. So I, I took um, sustainability, well-being, uh, welfare and feelings of personal security, uh, society indicators, 
things like the Gini coefficient, how long people live for, how healthy they stay, how long is they're, they're able to, uh, to stay uh, uh, healthy enough to continue to work, uh, those sort of things. And also some, some of those really hard GDP type figures and their economic performance. And we found out that small independent Denmark or smaller independent Denmark that doesn't have any of Scotland's economic assets, it has a little bit of oil and gas, uh, but really struggled uh, until it managed to carve out machine tools, um, chemical engineering and pork, which you'll all know about as well, um, as, the, as, as the three sort of main industries. That, that, that Those were all invented, if you like, by Denmark because they didn't have uh, core industries to, to base their economy on after World War II. Um, Denmark beats the UK, the big UK, on almost every factor except for natural resources, and that is because of Scotland is in the UK, uh, and uh, sustainability, and that's because Scotland is in the UK. You take Scotland out of the UK, it would only beat Denmark on one single factor, or economic factor, performance factor, which would be economic growth, except this is pre-Brexit, and now Denmark beats it on every single factor. And that's the case when we measured every single small, independent, northern European nation they destroy the UK in terms of economic performance. We are being held back by the UK. In terms of how it works into policies, this is a policy which uh, we created, which is called Benefit Corporation Tax Credits. And uh, you can look, go to the Scotianomics website, you can download these reports. Um, I don't know how many pages they are, but you know, 60 to 100 pages of these reports with lots of uh, unique research in there uh, from a research team. Uh, and basically, in a nutshell, what benefit corporation tax credits is, as we said, let's not reduce corporation tax because companies don't pay it anyway. They offshore, uh, they cheat in tax havens, etc. Uh, let's not reduce it the way that the rest of the UK is. Let's actually say it's going to be 20%, which would scare the pants off of any big corporation if you say it's going to be 20%. But it's going to be 20% unless you have gender balance on your board unless you pay the real living wage, unless you spend a certain percentage of your uh, profits on research and development, unless you increase your exports, unless you hire unemployed people, unless you meet these uh, pollution criteria, et cetera, et cetera. And so we created a, a, a 12 or 13 corporation tax credits that if you were a benefit to our society, if you were playing the game and pushing towards creating a well-being economics uh, in Scotland by your corporate behaviour, then you'll end up paying less corporation tax than you do in England. And so there's actually tax cuts built into getting rid of inequality, hiring young people, increasing exports, etc., etc. So using uh, corporate taxation to change corporate behaviours to fit with our well-being um, economic approach can be done. And if you've seen the SNP's Commission on Equality uh, and Fairness, then you'll notice that this is in there, that changing, using taxation to change behaviours is, uh, corporate behaviours is, is throughout that report, as are several of the well-being approaches. It actually says well-being economics is one of the chapters and multiple ideas from uh, business for Scotland and Scotianomics are in there, uh, including um, annual ground rent uh, and discussion about raising pensions, which is not as high as we'd like it to raise, but we can get to that in questions if you like uh, later. So basically, that's what I want to say about, about well-being. As an approach, if you take 
well-being and say it's not socialism, it's not capitalism, it's a hybrid of the two. It's the only thing that will actually ever work and it will stop boom and bust. But it's also not just something we're trying to create in order to convince people for an independent Scotland, because independence is not an end in itself. It is a means to an end. And that end is a better Scotland. And the well-being approach is what delivers prosperity after independence. It delivers sustainability, environmental sustainability, creates the type of Scotland we all want to live in and doesn't leave anyone behind. Um, so I think I'm going to leave it there, though I've got loads more information, although I did have something I was going to share with you, but I think of uh, very quickly, I'll just run through, no, I won't run through, I'll just tell you what this says. So basically, localised decision-making who thinks that works? Well, the Conservatives didn't. And the reason the Conservatives didn't is because they think all decision-making should be in London, but everyone else thinks that we should make decisions, not even in Hollywood, not even at council level, but at lower levels in communities. Um, does economic success being uh, more equally shared result in better, better growth? That means higher quality growth, more sustainable growth? Yes, it does. Small businesses are the backbone, not large corporates. Small businesses, when they employ, when a small business earns more money, it hires more people. It creates jobs. When a large corporate makes more money, it invests in robotics. It has automatic tills. It cuts jobs. So if you want to keep people working for longer, then spend your money on small businesses, but have an economy based on small businesses. In other words, Scottish businesses, not, not, not global corporates, etc. And once again, as you can see, uh, it, younger people are motivated to vote by a well-being approach, but older people are motivated to support a well-being approach. And so basically, we want to get 16 to 34-year-olds voting, and we want the over 55s. And by the way, the older they got, the more in support they got. So by the time you got to the 65 to 75, they were far higher than the 55 to 65 uh, range in terms of their support as well. Austerity has failed, slowed uh, the economy, uh, harmed people and society, made the country more susceptible to economic and health crises, 64%, again, with the undecideds in there. But we're going to have austerity forced upon us again by the Conservative government because that's how they think about economics. And so that's soon going to start really playing in our favour as well. We can build back better. Yes, we can. 61% want to see us change the way we approach that. And the final thing I was going to share with you is just a bit of news, which you may have noticed already. Uh, we've run a, a crowdfunder, which is to raise money, which is going to be completely spent on campaigning for Believe in Scotland. Uh, all the wages, all the office costs, everything that, that we have as both Business for Scotland, as Scotianomics and as Believe in Scotland are met by Business for Scotland donors and the revenues we make from events, when we can hold events. Uh, and so every single penny we've raised, all 129,000, it's actually about 131,400 now, uh, will be spent on campaigning. More billboards, more books, more leaflets to go through people's doors, um, materials, canvases, uh, things for uh, uh, leaflets. We're going to print a million leaflets and we're going to create campaigning videos and we're going to take the fight to the unionists and match them pound for pound. But that doesn't mean we're going to be equal to them because the things they're spending their money on are completely and utterly 
wasted. The billboards they put up were awful. So the messages we're putting out there are plain and simple and they're getting through. And when we test them, they're effective. And so we're also going to be uh, spending this money having a, a National Day of Action where we want to get 125 local uh, yes groups uh, to have a mass day of action to hold street stalls, barbecues, bake-offs, uh, you name it, whatever. Uh, and let's also deliver on that day 100,000 leaflets around Scotland, and I hope that your group will take part in that. Uh, and I think, as, as uh, uh, we were mentioning before, we do want to actually blitz some towns in the borders and in Moray uh, and give them a 28-page copy of our um, Open Minds and Independence articles, which will be printed in the National on that day. So there'll be 28,000 copies of the National with that in printed that day, and then we'll have another 50,000 copies of the of the pullout, which won't be branded National, we'll be branded Open Minds, and we can drop that through letterboxes and strong no areas and get the message across to people that independence will be good for them and it'll have the well-being message in there as well. And then we'll go back a week later, knock all the doors and talk to them and actually say, what did you think of this? And let's have a sensible adult conversation about independence and we'll know whether it works or not. So what's the difference between Believe in Scotland and Business for Scotland? Well, first of all, we've got the ideas and we don't complain, we campaign and enough people I'm quite humbled by this. Enough people have backed us and said, yes, we want to back that organization's ideas and we want to back them supporting the grassroots movement to deliver independence. And that's what we're going to try and do. Great. So now for any questions. That was absolutely brilliant, Gordon. So much food for thought there. Is some really surprising things for campaigners in the in terms of the way that the opinion split according to party allegiance. I wonder if anybody has a question for Gordon. Basic question that I, I think so much else hangs on is how the devil do we get rid of the growth report? Well, I, th I think that's simple. Basically, the, the growth report... If you think the growth report was good in its day, that it, it no. reached out to Conservatives, well, no, no not, I'm, I'm talking the general you, uh, but if people think it was good in its day and it reached out to Conservatives and it sort of made, you know, calmed the horses, et cetera, um, then fair enough, I'm not going to argue with that, but it wasn't inspiring. And I don't think we need to calm the horses because we're never going to get that 24, 25% that are on zero who are highly conservative and highly right-wing, they're never going to agree because they are completely institutionalised. They think Westminster mm -hmm. and the House of Lords and, and all these sort of things, the royal family, you know. So this is the thing that the royal family getting involved in the independence campaign will appeal only to the, to, to the hardcore support. It won't make a difference to anyone else. The thing is, the world has changed. Brexit's happened, COVID's happened. It's been mm -hmm. uh, taken over by events. So basically, uh, I've been talking to Scottish government at CABSEC level um, and actually saying we need to replace this, we need to change this, we need to take a different approach. I've given them the reports, I've given them the, uh, the, the surveys, etc. And for Kate Forbes to have been given economy and finance and for her to write her job description and write in her job description well-being economics as one for the first time ever that's ever been mm -hmm. written in a job description. I think that they're listening. Uh, I know they're listening uh, because um, 
you know, rather than being kept at an arm's length and then listen to the CBI the whole time, uh, you know, we, we can now send emails and get quick answers from ministers and all this sort of thing, you know. And Business for Scotland is rated uh, alongside the CBI, the SCDI, the Scottish Chambers of Commerce, um, and the Institute of Directors as one of the key influencing organisations. We have our own account handlers for the Scottish Government. So we know they're listening and they know they think we're credible. And they, we know that, uh, and I think we're still listening too much to the CBI. It's incredible that they even get in the door. But, you know, how many how many time meetings do you have to have with Scottish ministers to tell them you think the minimum wage is too high? I mean, you know, it only takes one meeting, doesn't it? Um, so, so basically, it's not about getting rid of it. It's about re- re-engineering and rethinking economics, given the new reality we've got right now. And automatically, therefore, what we come up with will be vastly different and more inspiring than the Sustainable Growth Commission. And therefore, it will be consigned to history, but not in a, not in a bad way. I'm not going to sit here and flag it off. There's too much negativity within the independence movement already. Well, I hope it doesn't take too long, Gordon. Because I'll be 80 next month. <laughs> well, I want to we see are, it. <laughs> we, we, are going to, we are going to have a referendum. Uh, not before you're 80, I'm afraid. Um, but uh, certainly before you're 82. Good, good. I'll, I'll try and survive till then. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> That's the positivity we're looking for. And... <laughs> um. We have two people with their hands up, uh, Rosalind and then Geraldine. Can I come to Rosalind first, please? Rosalind, if you'd like to unmute yourself. And thanks very much for answering Pat's question, eh, Gordon. Gordon, do you not think that the, even the Tories and Labour are going to say, yes, we think well-being economy is a good idea as well? But there are no yeah, They'll, they'll talk it. a good game. Well, Labour might do, but they're in no position to do anything about it. I mean, literally, they're like 12 or 14 percent behind in the polls. And if this continues, then Boris is going to call a, a, a snap general election next year. Um, you know, so basically, um, it, it, it's like, will Labour say, yes, we'd like to do this? Well, basically, in order to say, yes, we'd like to do this, just with, just with federalism, you have to say, why would you like to do that? The answer is, well, because the current economic system isn't working. Ah, so the nationalists are right. The independence would be better. You know, well, federal, why do you want federalism? Why do you want to bring in Devo Max? Well, because running Britain from Westminster doesn't work. Ah, so you admit the union doesn't work. You know, let them because it's self-defeating. Their own, if, if Labour do that, then their own members will move towards the SNP or towards, well, there's no point moving to the SNP. There's not going to be any more elections except for the council ones next year. So, but they'll move towards independence because the vast majority of Labour voters are either are, are, are open to independence. About a third of those, or about 33 to 34 percent of those that voted uh, 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 Labour in 2019 support independence. And like I say, if you take all of those thousands of voters in places like Helensburgh that voted tactically uh, for. Um, uh, not Helensburgh is a bad one, so it was the Conservatives, but in these areas where the Labour voters voted tactically for Conservatives, take them out. Those that are left, you'll find the 56% pro-Indie. So Labour's actually heading to uh, a, 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 a massive fight amongst itself as to whether or not to support an independent referendum and then even possibly whether or not that they should actually come out for independence. And with a well-being approach, then suddenly a lot of them are going to start going, yeah, actually, independence is a good idea. So, you know, 
it's never going to be implemented unless we have independence. The, the rest of the UK does not answer the polling questions in the same way as Scotland does. We know because we polled a thousand people in the rest of the UK as well, and Scotland is miles ahead of them in accepting these these principles. I mean, what I meant though was the, the, the Tories lie and we're talking a good game, and they'll say we also believe in well-being. What we are doing is for you know the well-being, and um, you know it's lying. It's not what they're doing, but I can see them yeah. just saying we also believe in this. And that 25 to 30% of the population that were on the zero and one will believe them, but nobody else will. You know, politicians will always lie. You just have to sound more convincing and have a better argument, and I think we do. My buddy from Kelvin, Ken Andrews, got his hand up there. Oh, th- thank you, Valerie. And I'd, sorry, I, I thought I was, I was going to, I was elbowing my way in there. Uh, yeah. So thank you for that. Um, Gordon, um, in, in terms of, of, of a lot of the, the, the as I see it anyway, the, the way that uh, the Conservatives and Labour have tried to run our economy, a lot of it is, is very much almost like Daily Mail based. And it's like, look what we're doing, look how fantastic this is. We're constantly increasing your asset values, principally the, the value of your house. Uh, and I suppose as I see it, it's a well-being economy kind of what we would sort of detach away from that concept of constantly increasing asset values, which I, I personally believe has been enormously harmful to our econ- economy and people's sense of well-being. Um, and, and I just wonder how you know you make that argument to get people to understand that constantly r- rising asset values or the value of the house is actually a destructive thing and not a, a constructive thing. Um, and so I'd be interested to Maybe know your thoughts on that. Well, the issue around uh, uh, rising asset values, yes, the cost of houses now is ridiculous. So you look at the well-being approach and how many young people said they would vote for it, said they supported it. You realise that's because they're looking at the world now. They're the first generation that's not going to earn more than the parents. Many of them might never get jobs. Uh, you know, how do you get on the, you know, if you do get a job and you're, you're working for Deliveroo, it's not 10 times salary to get a flat in, in the West End of Glasgow, it's 50 times salary. To, and you just, no one's going to lend to you. So, yes, asset uh, values or, or house prices in particular have actually increased uh, to the extent that you can't bring people in at the bottom ladder uh, anymore. So what do you do? Well, you have to have a massive house building uh, plan, affordable housing, affordable flats. They're going to be in the outskirts. You probably need a new town or two. Uh, but also you need to be saying to people, actually, it's possibly more affordable for us to actually try and get young people to go back to rural areas because the, the Scottish government's free university education brought people in from rural areas. They got degrees and things that weren't necessarily able to give them jobs in rural areas, so they didn't go back. Um and so basically, that's one of the reasons that rural areas are so conservative and so anti-independence, because it's full of old folks uh, who own their houses outright and are interested in asset values and, and are also interested in their pensions uh, because they're not selling houses, they need to live off a pension, etc. So how do, how do we, if we actually said, okay, fine, let's build a whole load of affordable houses, uh, that wouldn't actually necessarily reduce 
dramatically the top end of the market. So I don't think it's a negative there. So I don't think that, that, that you would actually upset people by actually building houses to get young people on the property ladder. In fact, in the end, that would increase asset values or at least make asset values more sustainable down the line um, as younger people got older and then became able to move up uh, the property ladder, etc. Um, but in terms of uh, the, the thinking around uh, investment asset values, and that brings us to the question around uh, pensions, for instance. So um, pensions, we have the worst pension in the developed world, the worst state pension developed world in the UK. Uh, a lot of pensioners live in poverty. And when I talk about this, quite often I see right-wing economists, I was on a talk just last week, and a right-wing economist said, ah, yes, Gordon, but they have private pensions, and private pensions brings it up, brings the average up. Yeah, it does, because some people are making an absolute mint out of private pensions because they could afford to, because they were paid an awful lot of money and because they had uh, good private pensions. If you didn't have a good private pension, then you're uh, living on £134.20 a week. Um, and I've, I've tried to think about that. That's, that's less than just one of my, my family's two Sainsbury shops. You know? So it's you know, ridiculous. Uh, to think that people can actually then pay their pay any mortgage or rent in particular, uh, or heat their homes, etc., on that amount of money. And there are other benefits. And there are you know there are other benefits, but they're also stopping the TV license for uh, over 75s. Um, I can't remember the age group that they stopped it for, etc. But you know, so so there are uh, other things that compensate to a certain extent, pension or credits, etc. But overall, the UK government of both red and blue colours have kept state pensions deliberately low in order to force those that can afford to take out private pensions. And that forces them to put their money into the city of London and increase asset prices, which then they go out and they buy shares, the, the big corporates become bigger and the big corporates shut down small companies uh, and take over small companies. And it basically, end, you end up with the new regions of the UK no headquarters, all your headquarters down in London near the financiers, etc. So yeah, it's been it's been tremendously uh, harmful uh, approach, and it's been followed by Labour. Gordon Brown and Alistair Darling, in particular, uh, did the most amount of banking deregulation to allow uh, that to happen. And so basically, we need to re-engineer society and actually spread wealth more uh, fairly. Because if you increase pensions, I would increase pensions to uh, 175 pounds. Uh, uh, no, 185 pounds. Sorry, is what I've, uh, I actually came to as, as the idea. So, raise pensions to 185 pounds, just slightly more than than uh, uh, 50 pounds a week. And if you do that, then pensioners go out and spend the money. Uh, they'll spend it on, you know, new pair of shoes, new coats. They'll spend it on presents for the the grandkids. They'll spend it on food. They'll heat their homes, etc. That money goes straight back into the economy, and you therefore get that back on it. But also the local shopkeeper then goes and hires more people and then pays their wages and you get some of that tax back as well. So you actually get most of that extra pension back. If, however, you, you um, create new money and give it to the banks and say to the banks, well, give everybody a COVID loan rather than the government giving you the money direct, the banks then profit. That increases the asset values. The banks make it make money, but nobody else does. So we've, we've got our thinking completely wrong. And Labour has also always had its thinking completely wrong. They started to change the thinking with Corbyn. But as was inevitable, and I wrote about this in the national column, as soon as he won, he was never going to be prime minister. Alan, 
Very simple one, Gordon. At some point, you have to engage with the politicians. How do you get the Scottish government working alongside you on this? Uh, well, like I say, we are actually uh, registered with the Scottish government as a, a partner a business group. Uh, we do talk to ministers on a regular basis. Uh, I have hour-long Zooms with cabinet secretaries, etc. Um, you know that that isn't a problem. If I, uh, not I personally, but if if Business for Scotland uh, wants to have a meeting with a minister in within a couple of weeks, we get that meeting. If we want a minister to come and talk to our uh, one of our one of our lunches, etc., and, and engage with our members, we get that. So and you know we put reports through. We don't always agree with them. Often we don't agree with them. Sometimes we've actually managed to force uh, some changes. Uh, years ago, um, uh, years ago, uh, business rates. We actually came out against the business rates and forced them to review their approach to business rates. Uh, but that in, ended up that that started because we started that ended up with us actually complaining about the Scottish government on the front page of the Scotsman. Which you know it's funny. Sometimes they don't listen, and sometimes you have to to go down that route as well. But that's rare we do. So they are listening. We have contact with them. And I think a lot of people say, oh, the Scottish government don't listen uh, and they don't they don't listen to what we're saying. The, the people who are saying that within the Yes movement are people that don't know how to lobby properly and don't know how to build those relationships uh, and tend to write blogs uh, that, that ruin relationships with the Scottish government. And we don't do that because we're political party neutral. Uh, and so, yeah, I think we've got a good relationship and I think they're beginning to listen. Although it's been very frustrating, I must say. I always say to people that I campaign for independence for free, but I get paid for dealing with the SNP. So on that note, can we move on to Graham McKellar, please? Legally, uh, uh, does the Scottish Government have the uh, power as things stand just now, without uh, referring to Westminster, do they have the, the powers to levy a land tax in Scotland? Or is that something that they would no. have to ask Westminster? Yeah, no, they don't. They don't have the powers to to levy. They've got they've got some powers of of uh, landfill tax, etc. But they don't have the uh, the ability to change the entire tax system to a annual ground rent and land tax. No, that would that would only come with independence. Okay, right, fine. It's actually Lynn Cochran next. Thank you. I've got Lynn? a book on land tax right in front of me. Colin, you there? Okay, thanks. Yeah, thanks, Valerie, and thanks very much, Gordon, for your uh, fantastic talk so far. I wanted to change question a wee bit because I've been having to read up and stuff and learn more and it's it's terrifying what I've been reading, right? Back in 2015 at COP21, the Paris Agreement said they would everybody agreed to pursue methods to hold the average global warming at 1.5 degrees centigrade, okay? Sometime within the next five years, there's a 40% chance we'll hit that already. That's already here. It's uh, 1.5 is a carefully chosen number because that means it's started. It's hell for leather after that. There's irreversible damage will start to be done. How's that going to affect well-being economy? How's that going to affect politics? Because our response to that has to be overwhelming. The pandemic is going to look like a picnic compared to this stuff. Uh, and the pandemic was horrendous, as we all know. How's that going to affect our plans, our, our whole thing about economics? Is it all up in the air? What, what happens? Envi environmental sustainability column is at the heart of well-being economics. Uh, you cannot sustain the well-being of, of society if your climate is changing dramatically 
Uh, and, you know, people sort of joke and say, oh, well, it'd be nice to have some sunny days. Well, uh, you know, actually what, what's going to happen is, you know, a lot more serious than that across the UK. But actually, if you look at areas such as uh, South America, there's already hundreds of thousands of people displaced and marching towards America. And America's answer is, let's build a wall, but keep on polluting. You know, it's they, they don't understand that these, these these are not economic migrants. These are people trying to feed their families. There's a world of difference, you know, between someone that thinks oh, I'll move there to to get a bit more money than I can make, and someone that's thinking if I don't do this dangerous trip and put my life in the hands of of um, gangsters to cross the American border, then my family's going to starve to death as things are going. You know, so so we're already seeing climate change uh, impacting certain parts of the world. You're certainly going to see uh, extremism as an answer, terrorism as an answer in parts of Africa in particular. Uh, but because we're sitting here nicely, you know, cosseted in the West End of Glasgow and we haven't been out of our houses for quite some time, we're not really that affected by it. But looking to the future and looking at uh, the risk uh, that we face from this, it is the single largest risk to the economy. Uh, and anyone that thinks we can carry on as normal and that, that we can we can just get back to normal and our economies will continue for the next 50 years growing the way they have been growing is completely out of touch with reality. There are major changes coming for all of us in the way we behave, the way we consume. Um, you know, the, the, even the idea of, of of the clothes we buy, we're going to have to change. I already have. I buy secondhand clothes. I buy clothes that I know will last, non-fashion items. I know you may have noticed I don't wear fashionable clothes. Uh, I'm out of fashion. <laughs> but I buy things like so. Um, I remember uh, uh, Wee Ginger Doug uh, picked up my coat once at a meeting in, in, a, in a pub and he sort of like uh, carried it over and he looked at it and he said, um, uh, I've forgotten, I forgotten what, what, uh, what the make was. Oh, a big wax jacket that I had. Barber. And he said, oh, I might have known the really expensive barber would be yours. And I said, yeah, I bought it secondhand for £10 and I've had it for 25 years and I've refitted it three times. He went, ah, okay, good. You know, so <laughs> and we then had a conversation about all his clothes being secondhand as well. We're all going to have to think about how we reuse. And it's no longer a slogan. It's going to be a, an absolute reality. Um, and also, we look at the pandemic. I can't say this is the case, but as the world heats up, viruses will behave radically differently. And you will see more opportunities for pandemics to come out of, of global warming as a result as well. It's already happening in Siberia. So, yeah, I agree. It's a huge issue and well-being has environmental sustainability at the heart of it. Well, it's, it's the biggest issue in the last couple of million years, perhaps. But what, what, uh, what, how can we think about a well-being economy when that's higher over Hanging over us. Because we're, because it's not hanging, it's not, it is because, here. Because, because every single element of the well-being economy, every policy within the well-being economy has to tick the box of environmental sustainability. There, there is, there is, and, and yes, that does have issues. We just for, need to get all the other democracies and all the other countries in the world doing the same thing. And well, we, need, we need to lead the way. We need to lead the way. And well, that's what it's coming to. Give us the Yeah. Independence gives us the opportunity to, to lead the way and to shine a light for the rest of the world to follow on environmental sustainability. COP26, we really need to be out there uh, making the case for well-being in general across the planet. Because there maybe, there maybe isn't another way. Absolutely. Maggie Chetty. Hi. 
Hi. There's a narrative that the SNP leadership are quite comfortable with devolution and not very prepared to fight for independence. If this is the case, how do we pep up the SNP leadership motivation for independence? Because none of the things we've talked about will shift unless we have that drive for positive moving forward. I'm aware of that narrative. Uh, and frankly, I, I think it's not. Uh, the SNP leadership are completely committed to independence. The difference isn't whether people are committed to independence and whether they want independence. It's when they believe it is best to move forward in order to win and guarantee independence. And there are people who say we should do it now, we should just dissolve the union and declare UDI, etc. And I understand their sympathy, I sympathize with their frustrations. I really do, because I'm completely committed to independence. But I don't want to do it right away. Um, I don't want to try and hold a referendum in the middle of the Olympics, or I don't want to hold a referendum uh, during the Queen's Jubilee, uh, or during the COVID, refer during, uh, hold a referendum during COVID. Um, and so basically what you've got is you've got Nicola Sturgeon, who went a bit gung-ho in 2017 and declared there will be an independence referendum in front of the podium at Butte House, etc. And then uh, we had uh, Theresa May call a snap election. And because the SNP had said we're going to have a referendum but hadn't built the case first before announcing that, they didn't have all the arguments ready. So they said we can't fight this election on independence. We have to say it's not about independence. And... So independence supporters went, you can't offer us an independence referendum and then back off it. And the Conservatives went, they're really weak on this. Let's uh, polarise the unionist vote around us. And they lost, what is it, 17 seats, etc. So once bitten, twice shy, they are more nervous than, say, Alba people are. But at the end of the day, uh, are they too nervous? Are they too slow? Could they have gone faster? Could they have done more already? Yes, they could have done. But could we could we hold a referendum this year? No, I think I think to you know if if the if the question you want answered is is it still possible from fifty fifty for us to lose, then the answer is let's hold a referendum right away or this year. Uh, but if your answer is when can we guarantee because we're not going to get a third shot? When can we guarantee we can win? Then I don't think we're talking uh, until we're talking about between twenty autumn twenty twenty two is the earliest to autumn 2023 is the latest. That's when we're going. We're going in that time, folks. So, so let's start getting ready for it. The SNP is committed to it. And if the SNP decided to go, oh, you know, we are you know, happy with independence, uh, without independence, et cetera, then the SNP would cease to exist the next day. So even if you think, even if anybody out there thinks that Nicola Sturgeon is only interested in her own career, her own career depends on calling an independence referendum in the next two years. So... That's it. We need to get ready for it. And so therefore, I don't give any I don't give any credence to the people that say that the leadership of the SNP do not want independence. But I do accept that they are a lot more nervous and a lot slower at, at going after independence than a lot of the people at that number one uh, or number 10 on the scale would like them to be. And that's where the disconnect in the movement has got because they're not very good at communicating to those people. SNP is terrible at communicating to the yes movement. 
Thanks. thanks, Gordon. Um, thanks, Maggie, as well, for your question. Uh, we have three more questions, and I think we won't take any more now. I think that will round us off nicely if Gordon's got enough time to answer those. The, the remaining three questioners are Jim Stamper, Alison Johnston, and Mary McCabe. So could I go to Jim Stamper first, please? Do you agree that extra financial flexibility gained by the early introduction of a Scottish currency could help the well-being economy? It depends on what you mean by the early introduction. So uh, I am in favour of a Scottish currency, and uh, that is the position of uh, Business for Scotland. We believe we should do it at the point that it is beneficial, most beneficial for Scotland to bring in that currency. And therefore, you have to have the maximum amount of flexibility on your currency stance. So for instance, uh, if we say that on day one we are of independence, we're going to launch our own currency, then you might say that gives us better monetary policy flexibility to create new money, etc. Well, yes, you do, but also, you know, the ability to create new money and put it into the economy without creating inflation uh, is based upon um, the valuation. The, 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 you know, if your currency is free floating, etc., it's based upon the valuation. Uh, the, the currency markets put on that. And I think you've also got a situation where, you know, so, so would they believe that a country launching a new currency who immediately started printing billions and putting it into the economy, would they actually trust that currency? No, they wouldn't. And because they think about economics maybe differently to what we might want to think about economics, then, you know, it's not necessary. The full flexibility would not come straight away. The other thing is, and this is where you've got to look at the, People are interested in economics and they talk about MMT and they talk about the benefits of your own currency, etc. Um, and they talk about how uh, modern monetary policy means you can print as much money as you want because look at what the conservatives have done with PPE, you know, just printing money for it, etc. And all of those things are true. And they were true when the financial crash happened because the money went to the asset holders, it went to the banks, it went to the finance markets, it didn't come to the people. Therefore, the people didn't go out. We built out the banks, we built out corporations. And with uh, loans, low interest loans to businesses and, and furlough, we didn't give individuals money, the government gave companies money. So the money has not been increasing. The flow of money to people has not increased and that's why it hasn't created inflation. But if you're launching a new currency and you think that you can just immediately start controlling things that you just turn left and turn right and put the brakes on or accelerate and it just, that's you in control of it, then you're not. There, there's a lot of other issues that you've got to understand and one of them is trade with the rest of the UK. So we've got this country with um, 60 million people in it right next to us, and we are their most important export market. Nobody buys cheese and carling lager, et cetera, other than us and, and Wales, basically. So you know they can't go and sell it to America and Europe. Uh, they need us as much as we need them, but we do sell a lot to them. And it's going to take time for us to sell to other countries and increase our exports to other countries, but we will do. When Scotland becomes independent, it's likely that the pound will sink in value, maybe 10 to 15 percent. If the pound sinks in value and we've got our own free floating currency, then basically we might end up with a hard currency, which would mean that it's 10 to 15 percent more expensive to buy from us. And therefore, they'll stop buying from us. and We can't afford that. So the idea that the Scottish government has got to explain what they're thinking is, is that they want maximum stability. 
so that your pensions that are paid in sterling from your private pensions and your company pensions that are paid in sterling from headquarter businesses are worth the same value the day after independence as they were before, which is if you keep the same currency. That it means that your uh, your trade, that a product purchased from across the border or sold across the border, is the same value the day after independence. If there's a big currency difference, then they might start looking elsewhere for it. So they're, they're talking about uh, businesses and pensioners, two groups of people that need to be convinced of independence, are convinced by using the same currency that the UK has, at least for a transition period. But my view is that we should possibly do that. But at the point that it becomes significantly beneficial to actually say, no, as of right now, we can actually launch our own currency and use the full monetary policy suite of tools, uh, then it becomes hugely beneficial for us, but maybe not straight away. And so there's still an argument, still a discussion to be held on that. But nationalistic thinking, who are not, who don't look at the big picture of the economy, say, wouldn't it be great to have our own currency, a Scottish pound? Yes, it would be. But there are practicalities. There are there are workings within workings, machines within machines, cogs moving against one another. And you've got to understand the whole picture to understand that the safest route is for a period, it might be a year, it might be two years, it might, it, it, I doubt it'd be five, but it might be three years, et cetera, of using the same currency could make sense. But they could also come to us and say, I'll tell you what, that currency union you suggested in 2014 is a really good idea. And we'll go, we'll make us an offer, five-year currency union. I'm pragmatic about this and I'm not nationalistic about it at all because I'm an economist. And therefore, I think that's where the Scottish government's coming from. So, so. In the long run, an independent country should have full control of monetary policy, absolutely 100%. But we don't have right now. And moving towards getting that might be beneficial for the economy, might be beneficial for society to move towards it more slowly than just saying on day one we're doing it. Thanks, Gordon. Um, I'm sure there's quite a few folk in here that would like to continue on that point, but where time is limited, I'm thinking that Andy Anderson sitting there uh, is for one, uh, but a uh, very interesting topic. To Mary. Hello, Mary. How are you? Nice hello, to you. hello, Val. Um, um, Gordon said, you know, people are impatient and want... want um, people to be moving for independence now, and we have to obviously wait until the opinion of, of the electorate moves before we actually go for a referendum. But of course, there are things to be dealt with before this will happen, which is answering questions that have occurred either during the NDRF or since um, to do with currency, the borders, all, this, all the different um, infrastructures that an independent country has to have. Now, the, the SNP way back in the day, um, the Scottish government way back in the day, produced this white paper, which has been um, basically outdated. The Growth Commission also outdated by now. They haven't worked on anything. As far as I know, they have worked on it, none, nothing since. They have to actually come up with answers to these questions before we can actually start a campaign about the independence uh, towards an independence referendum. Um, in, in the Scottish Independence Convention recently, we had Marco Biaggi speaking to us, and he had been at that point in charge of working towards answering the questions for the independence referendum. But he said all the wee groups that had been set up to do this had all been redeployed to quote, to deal with the COVID crisis, unquote. And shortly after that, of course, we hear that Marco Biaggi himself has um, 
gone off and as far as we know not been replaced so I mean I'm a very patient person I've been waiting since 1967 for independence I don't expect to see it but what I would like to see is an actual movement in that direction it's different being um, in a stalled bus and being in the slow boat to China I'm happy with the slow boat to China but the stalled bus no I think we should come up with some answers to this. And there have been all these academic groups from Commonweal, Scottish Independence Convention, and of course, Believe in Scotland, dealing with these answers, coming up with um, answers to the questions. The Scottish government does not appear to be um, coordinating with this at all or paying any attention to it. And I, want, I just want to know um, how we can actually get them to get their attention on it, because the COVID crisis is going to be with us for the rest of our lives, one way or another. It's an endemic. It's not just a. It's not just a pandemic. So um, we will always be able to say there's still a bit of COVID out there, and we have to focus on this. So how do we actually get them to concentrate on the issues that have to be answered before we go into the independence referendum? Because that's what makes people think they're not serious about it. Okay, said enough. Over to you. <laughs> Great. Uh, I'm not sure which of those fifteen question type statements I need to deal with first, but no, in, in general, uh, Mary, I think I, I do think you're making some, some, some very good points there. Um, and I do understand the frustration uh, as well. Um, one of the things that I said before is that the SNP isn't that good at communicating with, with the Yes movement. And I think that's partly to blame. Um, I know certain people within the SNP hierarchy have been thinking along these lines, have been having these conversations because I've been having conversations with them about it. Um, and I know that some things are a lot more advanced in terms of the thinking than some people think. And I know there are other areas where they, they just haven't got round to looking at it. And they should have done. They should have done by now. It's, it is a little bit slow, even for a gradualist, if you like the term, like myself. Um, the, but in terms of uh, what do I see as the key movement? Well, the, the key signs of movement are that even after Holyrood, Nicola is talking up the fact that we're now going to win independence and that there is going to be a referendum. She's committed to that. And as I said before, her career depends. So her legacy depends on delivering a referendum and winning it. Uh, and she knows that. And I have had conversations with her about when to pick the date. Uh, and she's not that worried about it. She thinks, you know, she didn't say when, uh, but she, you know, this is also a while ago as well. Uh, not not uh, not recent not that recently, but I know the issues that she's she's told me the issues that she's facing, um, um, and also quite enjoying watching uh, the opposition tear themselves in, in knots and and, and uh, you know bricks etc. And, and just waiting for the right moment to pounce. And that's her sort of attitude to that. Um, in terms of uh, the move that Kate Forbes, who uh, obviously has been doing, I think, a sterling job of finance has taken over economy as well. And they've put everything in the same basket. You know, the, the tremendous amount of trust that's been put in Kate Forbes. And with her putting well-being economy in her job title, and also, you know, I, I think that's clearly a move that Kate Forbes is going to be putting the economic case for independence together. Right. So I think that's that's now uh, who's who's been put in charge of thinking about that. Uh, that has not been spelled out to me that that as clearly as I'm saying it to you, but that is my reading of the situation and multiple conversations that I've had. The next thing uh, that I would say to you is that in terms of the 
SNP in terms of their approach to this next referendum? How could they? How could they actually figure out what the economic approach is during COVID and, and Brexit and the response to Brexit? It's 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 huge. It's made it hugely complicated. They've also written this form of white paper, which has a lot of detail in there uh, about the structures, etc. But we want to get away from answering questions about structures and answering questions about jurors. We want to get on to answering questions about what we see an independent Scotland looking like. What is the dream? If it is a dream, and how do we make that dream a reality? And have those conversations rather than have somebody go, jurors says this. Because I'd like to be able to say, as we all would, and someone asked me, oh, but, but jurors says you've got this. We say, well, yeah, jurors is Scotland in the United Kingdom, and as part of the United Kingdom, our economy isn't performing very well. Thank you very much for pointing that out. But what we're going to do is this, right? And I think that the, the, the change within the cabinet to put Kate in charge is showing that they put a more progressive person uh, in, in place and given that person the responsibility. I'm noticing in some of the other things they're doing in terms of the Fairness and Equality Commissioning Commission, actually talking about actually saying what the pension should be in an independent Scotland. It's too low, but it's higher than the UK's. Um, so I think the fact that they're actually now starting to talk about pension in independent Scotland, it, all of these things are signs that they're, they're going in the right direction. Is it fast enough for people who sit at number 10 on that, that scale of commitment to independence? No, it's not. They're never going to be happy with it, right? I appreciate. I'm a 10, but I'm a gradualist 10. But the, and I'm a pragmatic 10. I understand why we're moving at the pace we are. Because we can only move at the pace of the undecided. And right now, the undecided do not want a referendum this year. They don't want it during COVID. And I agree that COVID could well stay with us. It could well be part of our life ongoing. But hopefully... Uh, it's not going to result in lockdowns. It's just going to be something like seasonal flu for the old folks, but it will be seasonal flu for everybody. And, you know, so there will be ongoing inoculations, these sort of things. There comes a point where people go, right, now we have to move on. And that will not be this year. It will be next year. And so, you know, from next year, the Yes campaign will be in full effect and the SNP will have its policies in place later next year because it will be declaring a referendum either late, later next year or the year before. And by declaring, I mean saying there's going to be one and starting to name a date. So it doesn't necessarily mean the referendum will be next year, but you have to, if we're going to go in May, you have to say it before Christmas, for instance. So that's where we're at. And I'm completely convinced that there is going to be a referendum. And if, if Nicola Sturgeon were to say, no, I support devolution and I've gone off independence, then I'd be the first person to call for a head. But I know that's fantasy land. It's not going to happen because... If you cut Nicola Sturgeon in two, she'd like like rock, you know, right? It, it'd have independence written in small letter and right in, in her core. Um, that's who she is. That's who she, what she stands for. And so people shouldn't actually, they, you, you know, it's fair enough to say you don't think she's going as fast as you'd like her to. But to say that she doesn't believe in independence just doesn't doesn't compute in my view. So hopefully, maybe that is a, is a, a quite a long answer to quite a long question, and it, and it, it gives you some hope. Um, sorry, I, I, I never said I w it was too slow for me. Matt, that's uh -huh. not a problem. I don't expect an independence referendum myself this year, next year, or the next or the year following either. And I don't expect Nicola Sturgeon to say. I do. Well, okay. I don't expect Nicola Sturgeon to say she's happy with devolution either. But what I expect is to be kind of promised an, an independence referendum again and again and again, but without the work prep that, that we have to see prepared for that independence referendum, which which tells me that it's maybe not going to happen and we'll just slide on like this. Are, what, what I'm worried about is no movement, not slow movement. Is, 
my point right. is made it, they are starting to do the work and they're under tremendous pressure from us and will continue to be under tremendous pressure from us to do the work and to work with us on the well-being economy. We will lobby. We will. Yeah. Thank okay. you very much. And uh, we started with Geraldine introducing Gordon. Can we finish with Geraldine as well? Gordon, it will be quick, but slightly two-pronged. Um, if you had to stake next month's salary on it or all the money we've just raised for, for Believe in Scotland and the campaign... What date do you think you would you would put your money on for the NDRF? Autumn 23. Autumn 23. September, September, October 23. Okay, and supposing now, if this has been asked while I was looking for the fantasy hands, I apologise. <laughs> um, what if Boris Johnson calls a general election before that? What impact is that likely to have on NDRF 2, for good or for bad? Yeah, well, first of all, it's a good question because I actually think he, he, he will. Uh, he's got rid of the Six-Term uh, Parliaments Act. Uh, he's uh, pulling away in the polls. He's winning in Hartlepool. And, you know, I'm from Hexham and Northumberland, and I've been to Hartlepool. I played hockey in Hartlepool. And let me tell you now, the idea that Hartlepool has a Conservative MP, every time I say it, makes me go, no, wait, check. Are you right? Are you actually right? Do they? You know, I'll have to look it up again. No, they do. You know, it, it's just incredible. Um to, to see that. So I suspect he will at some point call a general election, uh, an early early general election. There are a couple of issues uh, around that. Having been caught with that problem before, Nicola Sturgeon is not going to uh, make an announcement for a date and then allow Boris to jump in. Uh, she's going to wait until she thinks she's clear of that situation. Um, and she's going to wait in, until uh, the, all the... Uh, policies and ideas are in place so that if, if a general election were dumped in our laps after we'd called a referendum, uh, that we'd be able to fight that election on the basis of independence because we've, we're ready. Uh, so again, there's going to be delays uh, in, 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 along those lines. Uh, what impact would it have? I think uh, a, an absolute dominance of a Boris Johnson government, which I I predicted a Boris Johnson government in 2014, and everyone said, oh, no, he's a clown, he'll never even lead the party. And it was to me, it was an obvious direction he was going in. Uh, but to actually see him win another five-year term and an even bigger majority, which is a significantly bigger majority, which is pulling the thing right now, um, uh, would be good for independence because a lot of Labour voters would switch. Um, so you know, there's an upside and a downside to that. Uh, the, what I would imagine will happen, though, is that Nicola Sturgeon will get all of the um, uh, all of the ducks in a row uh, and all the policies written, all those sort of things, and then she'll give us a very quick, less than six month run in uh, to a referendum, um, having upped the the ante uh, before that which is why it's never been more important for campaigns like Believe in Scotland to be getting the information out there, to be campaigning, to get to support the grassroots movements, to get street work done, to have a million conversations, a million sensible conversations, non-judgmental conversations about independence with people, to let them realise that independence is normal. Uh, because when it comes, we're not going to have a two-year run-in like we did last time to have those conversations. We've got to be ready. And our big advantage, our huge advantage, is that we've got people. We've got 100,000 people willing to march. We've maybe got 50,000 people willing to, to drop leaflets and 20,000 or more willing to canvas and knock doors. And, you know, you actually think about that. You actually think about, I mean, Believe in Scotland's combined Facebook followers of Believe in Scotland and Business of Scotland, et cetera, is more than 200,000 people. You know, so we can get messages out 
instantly through social media, etc. Um, that's our big advantage. We're never going to be able to outspend the opposition when billionaire landowners can just throw in here's a five million pound donation. We're never going to get that, you know. Um, and so basically, we need COVID to have cleared, and we need a clear run at it. And we need people to have gone on holiday and relax and not be so stressed as well, which they're going to do next summer uh, in particular and later this year. Uh, and we need to get clear of the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. We need to get clear of the, the uh, council elections in May next year. Uh, we need to get uh, clear of obviously the Euros, the Olympics. If, you, if we try to do it this year, every single Scottish athlete that, that even qualified for a final would be interviewed live on TV and asked if they got helped by the British Federation. And every single gold medal winner will be on every billboard just like Philip was. You know, so, you know, we don't want to give them these opportunities. We want to get our ducks in a row and pick the best time. And the best time is probably to try for a May 23 to then go to court with Boris Johnson to win and then hold it in late 23 in September, October 23. Uh, and the reason for that is if we are going to wait until 24 for the general election, then if we if we win the referendum, and there is uh, no acceptance of that victory from Westminster, then we don't ask for another referendum or a mandate for another referendum. What happens in 24 is that it is a UDI referendum because only after all democratic routes have been exhausted will the international community accept UDI. And the best way to get them to accept UDI is to win a majority in the elections to the parliament that controls the constitution. Uh, and that is the that is the road that we are on. So it will be somewhere along that road, when, wherever benefits us most tactically to do it. Um, and if you're thinking, is Gordon just making this up, or is Gordon uh, someone that might actually know and be trusted? I'll let you decide that. <laughs> I'm sure there's nobody that thinks that. Uh, well, I, I, that's a great note, a really positive note. And you no one thinks I'm someone to be trusted. <laughs> okay. your, your organisation is very well known for its positivity. <laughs> um, can I just ask everyone to unmute themselves? Um, because I'd like to thank everyone who's attended tonight. In particular, I'd like to ask all the people who submitted questions, very interesting questions. But if everyone unmutes themselves, I'd like to thank most of all our very informative and knowledgeable speaker, Gordon Kemp, who works tirelessly and could we just all put our hands together in the traditional way. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Gordon. Thanks, Gordon. Thank you. Enjoy it anytime. You're listening to IndieLive.radio. My name's Valerie Gold and this has been the Yes Group Spotlight Monday show here at IndieLive.radio. We'd like to thank Yes Glasgow Northwest for allowing us to broadcast their meeting which took place in June and especially of course we'd like to thank Gordon McIntyre Kemp on behalf of Yes Glasgow Northwest as well for giving up his time and answering the questions of all the people who were involved. And we wish Believe in Scotland all the very best with their campaigns, billboards and leaflets and all the different campaign techniques that they are taking forward.